Suppose someone came to you and to me and said to you, I am willing to give you $1,000 for every single unbeliever that you earnestly tried to lead to the Lord. Would that motivate you? Would that motivate you more to do that than just knowing that Jesus had commanded us to do that? And that our love for the Lord should motivate us to do that? Would an offer like that to you or me or to any of us motivate us more? And really what that would do is sort of demonstrate that we love money more than we love the Lord. What would we do? How would we respond? This week, we're going to be starting a four-week series called Our House. And when I say Our House, what I'm referring to is the Victory Family. Don't ever get confused with the church being a building or our house being a building. Our house is the Victory Church family. It's you and me together. And we're going to be looking at four values that I would hope and pray that are very prevalent in our house, in our lives as a church. And the reason those four values, I think, are so important in a church is because they will help us to become more and more and more a church, a body of believers that brings glory and honor to God. That's why we exist. That's why I exist. That's why we exist as a human being. That's why God created us to bring glory and honor to Him. The body of Christ coming together. His bride to bring glory and honor to Him. And I feel as we look through these values in the next four weeks, starting today, I hope that we say yes. That's already a picture of us, at least in part. But I also hope it tells each one of us, you know what, we can do better. We need to do better. If we truly love the Lord, if we truly believe that He changed and transformed my life, the world needs it. And for whatever crazy reason, God has trusted His church and commissioned His church to do that work. So we need to look and see what kind of motivation should we have. And I guess if there's going to be a big takeaway from today's message at all, it would be this, that I think in the Scriptures we're going to look at today, we see Jesus actually taking His disciples, His followers, and trying to explain to Him and demonstrate to them what that motive should be to fill the Great Commission. So this morning, the first one is titled, The Commission. Most of us are familiar with the Great Commission. What is a commission? Well, I, I looked it up in Webster just to see if, uh, uh, if that would help me understand the commission of the Lord. And Webster says something like this, and there are always so many definitions, but it says if you've been commissioned, you've been given the authority to act on the behalf of or for or in place of someone else. Wow, that's a powerful thought when we think in terms of Jesus giving us a commission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to teach, baptize. He's commissioned us. He ascended to heaven where He is interceding for us. 
full-time, but he sent the Holy Spirit to equip us, to empower us, to carry out this commissioning for him in his place. Now, we all know, and we'll see this a little later, only God can change a human heart, but we have a role to play as his church, as his body. In Matthew 28, verse 19 through 20, the Great Commission, as we would call it, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go. Teach. Teach. One of the best ways of teaching is by demonstrating. Amen? Teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. Demonstrating what it looks like to obey all those things that I commanded you. Biblically, a definition would simply be reworded a little bit. Followers of Christ, you and me, His church, have been given the authority and the power and the duty to go into all the world, to make disciples, to teach, and to baptize. The authority has been given to us by Christ. The power, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And he says, now go and do it. We have a duty to carry this out. Excuse me. This text that I'm going to be looking at is just a few verses in Matthew chapter 9. Chapter 9, starting in verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people... Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into this harvest. If you look at the context of these verses, by the time we get to chapter 9, that verse 35 is kind of saying, hey, this is what Jesus has been doing in all chapter 8 and chapter 9. He finished the Sermon on the Mount, and it says Jesus came down from the Mount, and He started going to cities, villages, wherever He went, teaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing, casting out demons, doing all of this supernatural ministry wherever He went. So we read chapter 8 and this far into chapter 9 and it's, wow, that's amazing stuff that he's doing. And then when we look at verse 34, the verse preceding this, if you look in your Bibles, there's these religious leaders again. And boy, in this whole message, religious leaders just didn't look good. Not just in Jesus' time, but going back 500 years earlier in the time of Ezekiel. We'll look at a scripture there. They weren't doing their job. And Jesus, they actually say to him, well, he's done all these things, but you know what? He's doing it by the power of the devil. He is acting as the devil. Now, Jesus is hearing that. Now, you and I going out there, maybe we're going to get up enough courage to go share the good news with somebody. And all of a sudden, we start getting some kickback we don't like. You're just the devil. 
What are you doing that for? You have no right to do this. It's a personal thing. Get out of my face. Go on. You're a demon. What would we do? Well, we'd probably turn tail and run. Or we'd demonstrate a lack of the love of Jesus and scream and holler and argue with them. Neither one's a very good way. Jesus listened to this accusation that he was just acting as the devil, but it didn't stop him. He just basically, for far as we can tell, he, didn't even, he just ignored it. And then we go into these verses that I just read. And Jesus uses two interesting, very interesting metaphors. They would have been very good metaphors to use in an agrarian uh, community, agrarian culture, where the, the, sheep, the shepherds, the sheep, raising of sheep would have been a very common picture for them to relate to, and farmers, the harvest, two of them. And he uses the first one, the sheep, without a shepherd. In verse 36, he says the people, he sees the people as sheep without a shepherd. He's looking at them. And if you would look at some of the words and do a little bit of a word study, you're going to see some things in these word studies. He's looking at the people and he's seeing they are in a state of distress. They're being harassed, bullied, oppressed. They were trapped in a system that they couldn't get out of. They were stuck. They couldn't overcome the situation and the system that they were in. And really what Jesus is doing there, he is describing the situation of people without God. Stuck in a system of sin. Distressed. Oppressed. It's horrible. And the most horrible thing is, about it is this, you don't see any way out. Hopeless. There's no way out. We just got to try to live through it. Get through it. Try to exist. There's no way to live. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. He says, I'm looking at them and they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're scattered. They don't know where to find food. They don't know where to find water. They don't know what to do. The shepherd trapped in their system. As the unbelievers in this world are, we're in trouble. Before you or I were given the grace to accept Christ and we responded positively, we were in trouble, which is putting it mildly. We were ensnared in a system of sin, and unless something happened, we were going to spend eternal destruction in hell forever. And not a thing we could do about it on our own. We were trapped. Hopeless and helpless. And this is what Jesus is saying. And what moved him was that word compassion. It says he was moved to compassion. And so often in the Greek, a phrase in the English is just one word in the Greek. And that's the case here. The word, and I can't pronounce these big words, is splenizama. Splenizama in the Greek. And what that word really means is They felt compassion, yes, but it is the strongest word in the Greek language used to describe a feeling of pity. It's like to your very bowels of your being, it has to move you. And this is what it's being said about Jesus. He's looking around and seeing all these people, and he's seeing them as sheep without a shepherd. 
seeing they're in this terrible state and they're helpless and hopeless and he sees and there's such compassion in him to the very depths of his bowels, he had to intervene. He had to act. He had to move. He had to be the shepherd for those that were shepherdless. And it's interesting to me, without going back into great detail, but about almost 600 years before, there was a prophet by the name of Ezekiel. And he is speaking the word of the Lord to the people. And it's sad again because what he's really doing is rebuking the shepherds of that day. He's rebuking, and I say shepherds, not of the sheep. I'm talking about the priests and the Jewish religious leaders who were supposed to be taking care of the flock, supposed to be speaking truth, supposed to be caring for them, supposed to be helping the sick, helping those that are in bondage. And this whole thing in chapter 34 of Ezekiel, he's rebuking them. And then he says, this is God the Father speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. And listen to how similar it is to what Jesus has said. In Ezekiel chapter 34, and I took words from a number of verses. I tried to keep them all in context for all you Bereans, but they're in the group of verses. But basically what it says is, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so will I care for my sheep. I will feed them. I will lead them to rest. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the scattered. I will bind up the broken. And I will strengthen the sick. And he's saying this because the shepherds, the under-shepherds, the religious leaders of the day weren't doing their job. And the Father's heart says, I'll do it. I'll do it. And of course, what he did was the greatest thing that ever has happened. He sent his son, Jesus. God came in the flesh to become our shepherd, our good shepherd, to provide a way for us to find that peace, to find rest, to live a life where we aren't continually depressed, distressed, oppressed, all of these things. And then Jesus changes from looking at the people And looking at us as sheep without a shepherd, now all of a sudden he changes his focus. We've heard about his amazing compassion. And now he changes his focus to his disciples, to the believers. And he's telling them something. I believe the message, first of all, was, you need my compassion. And then secondly, he says, look at the situation. Look at the world that they were living in. And you and I can look at the world we're living in and hear this same message. When God was looking at the world that they were living in, He was saying, there is an unbelievable opportunity staring us in the face. There is a harvest because the people are oppressed. They're distressed. They're hopeless. They don't know where to turn. There's no way out. They don't know what to do. But that's a field ready and ripe for harvest. And he says to them, think about what he asked, asked him to do. What, was the, what did he ask him to do? There's this harvest, it's ripe. 
He says, but you know what? There's nobody to take care of the harvest. You know, we live in rural areas here. We, we see all these fields of grains, corn, soybeans out there. And what would it be like if all of a sudden it's time to harvest the crops and there's no one to go do it? The snow has come and the crops are destroyed. No one. To, no one. A beautiful, bountiful harvest could be available, but unless somebody does something, it goes to waste. And this is what he's saying to them. He said, he's saying to them, there's a harvest out there. It's plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest. Go to the Lord. Beseech Him. Pray to Him. For what? He doesn't just ask them to pray for harvesters. He asks them to pray that the Lord will send forth the harvesters. And if you look at that word study on the word send forth there, what it's saying, the picture that comes into my, na- my mind is you got a bird's nest up in a tree and it's time for all the birds to get, get little birds to get out of the, out of the nest. And they're looking over the edge and they just don't want to go. And the bird just, mother bird gets behind him and pushes him, shoves him, expels them out of the nest. That's what that word send forth the laborers mean. Ask God that he would thrust forth laborers, that he would kick them in the butt and get them going. Well, that's maybe not the right paraphrase, but the message is the same. They need to pray that he'll get him out there. You almost would think because of the way it's worded, they won't rush to do it on their own. They're going to need a little push. Pray that the Lord would send forth the harvesters. I believe he's trying to create enough compassion by talking to them and letting him see the sheep without a shepherd. Letting them see that compassion. Look at the world around us. Man, what do we look at? I mean, I had to confess, I told this to, I think, two, three people this week. Now, without getting political, I see certain signs or certain stickers on cars and I go, I don't think I'd like that person. Why? Because I don't agree with them. What a Christian attitude, right? Man, Lord, forgive me. That is showing zero compassion for whoever they are and whatever they believe compared to what I believe. No compassion. Why is evangelism so hard? You know, sometimes I have met people like this, and you maybe have too, and they are evangelists, and they probably are called to do it, but it's like another notch in their belt. Got one. Got another one. Got another one. It's like they're in a contest, seeing how many people they can save. Now, I don't want to discourage us from being aggressive evangelists, but in the right way and the right motivation. What motivates us? Would that $1,000 ahead for you just trying really hard motivate you more than the love and compassion of Christ? That's what should motivate us. The love and compassion of the Lord. Uh, And a theologian, J.I. Packer, put it this way. He said, there are two motives that should spur us to evangelize. Love for God and concern for His glory. And secondly, love for man and compassion and concern for his soul. Boy, in our culture that we live in, we've almost been convinced that we should never, never 
try to evangelize? What right do you have to push your views on me? And we've almost fallen into this trap of somehow or other in this whole idea of political correctness or whatever you want to call it, of buying into that, you know, maybe I better not do that. I don't want to. They can believe what they want to believe. And we can convince ourselves that it all sounds so good. But if we would just be reminded they are sheep without a shepherd, they're lost and they're going to hell unless something happens. Unless God changes their heart. And he will use us to show, demonstrate, and even speak the gospel to them as we go forward. The harvest is plentiful. Just think of that. What did he, why was it so plentiful? Because the people were in such distress. Does that not sound like the world we're living in today? The world is in such distress, such chaos. They're just looking and searching for hope somewhere in this mess, not only in their own personal life where there's just a sense of hopelessness, but they look at what's going on around us and all of a sudden it's just fear. Fear fear of what's taking place, the chaos, the horrors that are all around us in the world. Jesus saw that great need and he saw nothing but an opportunity and it moved him by compassion for those souls. We need to see these things from the way Jesus sees them. This chaos, this feeling of fear and hopelessness should be like us looking into a field ripe unto harvest. They're looking for something. They need something. It's hopeless for them. And we don't want to waste the harvest. And again, it was convicting for me as a pastor to see when Ezekiel spoke God was upset at the least with his under-shepherds. They weren't doing the job. In Ezekiel, if you read through some of that, you'll see that they were taking care of their own needs. They were building their own wealth. It uses words like they were feeding themselves before they took care of the people. They didn't take care of the the sick. They didn't take care of the lonely. They didn't do any of that. God says, I've had enough. We're probably all more familiar with in the New Testament... When Jesus comes and he's ministering, he's doing all these amazing things. And the religious people of the day, yeah, he's just a devil. Eventually, let's just crucify him and be done with it. He's ruining our positions of power and prestige and authority. And God, today, sadly today in our culture, sadly today, there are too many pastors, preachers, teachers that are tickling people's ears for the sake of a bigger congregation. We're going to put on a better show. We're going to do all these things and draw people. And you know what? Putting on these things and doing it well is not a sin, but if they're not hearing the truth, yeah, are our pastors, are people like me any better than them? And we're all called to do that. Not just pastors or elders or leaders. We are all called to do that. You all have a sphere of influence that I don't have. We all have a place, but we need to be able to be like Jesus and look at people with a compassionate heart that just breaks for the lost instead of wanting to go over and straighten them out and win the argument about what party is politically correct and what one isn't. That will do nothing for the kingdom of God. 
Why do we hesitate to share our faith? Boy, I think there's a lot of reasons. Most of them at the bottom comes this fear thing underneath. Some of us just have really crazy ideas. I shouldn't say crazy. There's no crazy idea when it comes to evangelism as long as we're doing it well with love. But, you know, if you're my age or a little somewhere in there, you remember watching Billy Graham Crusades, maybe even went to one. And you say, well, I'm not Billy Graham. And I don't see those crusades. Well, that won't work. A lot of us are maybe familiar with Jim Elliott who flew to un, some tribe and was martyred. Uh, I'm not called to go do that. Some of us remember from my era again, man, just, if you're going to be a good evangelist, you've got to get a package of tracts, put them in your pocket, and go door to door knocking on the doors and hope that they wake up good in a good mood. Oof. I got to confess, I only did that once. I knocked on a door. They opened it. I knew this guy. <laughs> Mike knows him really well. And I just got him out of bed. There's beer cans everywhere. Ashtrays are overflowing. And I'm like, do you know Jesus? <laughs> hey, I'm not knocking going door to door. It's what God leads you to do. Go for it. But those are the kinds of things that just put fear in me. I'm never going to go do that again. If I wouldn't have had a brother in Christ putting pressure on me, I'd have quit right then. But we went on. Got a little better. We have ideas that this is what it's supposed to look like. And none of them are bad things. I mean, as churches, you know, we, we love to try to help the poverty in different parts of the world. We all have sent, this church is sent because of your generosity checks for $5,000 more than once to different parts of India and different countries to help buy blankets, to buy food. That's awesome. We love to send out short-term mission trips. That's awesome. But the reality is those things seldom have a systematic change in what's going on in those people's lives. They're great things. But it does in our hearts and our lives are awesome. And we should do those things. The Lord has told us to do those things. But what really changes things is when a God changes a human heart. And all of those things that we do, it has to come back to what is the Lord going to do in their life. You know, evangelism is, is not about you being perfectly prepared, polished, man, you're looking good, perfect. It's not about that at all. What God is really interested in is allowing God to use you and me every day in our ordinary walks through life. You know, we can't get boxed in by methods. God can use any method He wants. And He can use any person He wants. But we need to be available. And you know what? Uh, he uses us despite our failings. You know, it's so often we hear testimonies, even like we heard up here I thought I was disqualified. I thought I wasn't good enough. Man, you might go out the first time you go door to door because the Lord told you to and you run into one of those situations I did. I am never going back. God might use that in a powerful, powerful way. We don't know for sure. But we need to not be boxed in. And we need to realize, and I think a lot of times churches, pastors, leaders, fall into this trap of almost marketing 
Christianity is a self-help program. It is a self-help program, but it's so much more than that, and the self-help can't come from you. You can't fix yourself. You can't fix you. The only one that can fix your heart is the Lord. That's it. That's what we need to make sure we're trying to share with people when it comes to evangelism, fulfilling the Great Commission. We can get in such a place. Now, at the risk of stepping on my own toes and yours, if I haven't already, evangelism is so much more than speaking the gospel. If there is a world out there that's hurting, that's looking for love, that's looking for grace, that's looking for joy, that's looking for peace, and they look at you and me and they don't see it, they aren't going to come running to you and me when they're searching. They're not interested in what I say near as much as they're interested in my demonstrating Christ to them. Does the life I'm leading give a powerful message of what Lord can do in a human heart? Man, if we work hard at it at all, I mean, we don't even have to work very hard. Most of us could learn a two-minute presentation of the gospel that we could speak. But frankly, they want to watch our lives. They're watching. The world's watching. They're looking. They're searching. They're looking for those things I just mentioned. Hope, peace, love, grace, joy. And I want them to look at us as the body of Christ. This is our house, the family of victory, and see those things in our lives so that they come walking up to you in the workplace, at the water cooler, on the streets, wherever you come across them and say, I don't get it. How can you actually be happy? How come you seem to be at peace in the midst of all that's going on? Maybe they even know what's going on in our lives because our lives can be chaotic. How come you're not a wreck? When they're searching, are we demonstrating a lifestyle that will draw them to come and search in us? That's probably the most powerful evangelism there is. Yes, we need to be ready to always share the truth. The reason why we can walk in love and joy and peace and extend grace. We have to be able to do that. But frankly, they're watching your life. They're watching my life. They watch our life at work. If they're close enough at all, they watch how you live and act at home. They watch and act to see if Saturday night in your life looks anything like Sunday morning. They're not interested in your Jesus brand that you put on your Facebook page. They're not even interested in your Christian clothes, Christian jewelry. Unless your life is representing all those things. And that's where we, are, we can fall so short. We can lose focus. And I believe Jesus is making sure his disciples understand this world that the sheep are in without a shepherd what will motivate you is when you understand the compassion that I have for the lost. When you have that compassion for the lost like I have, 
you will go into all the world making disciples, teaching them, baptizing them. And then he adds, oh, and by the way, you aren't going to go alone. I will be with you always. We forget that part, thinking we're going to go out there. You know, again, I've said this before this morning already. You can't save anybody and neither can I. But God wants us to play our part. We have a role in it. Evangelism is way more than just facts about God. It's an invitation for us to help people discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. And they want to see it in us. So it gives us the right and the privilege to share with them why we have this hope that's in us. So is, is my motivation, this was, this was my heart check, why, am I motivated by compassion for the lost? You know, I, it really, I, I was not enough, not often enough. I mean, I can be motivated to share the gospel because I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to do that. Well, that's a great reason. That way, if any of you happen to ask, have you shared Christ with anybody lately, Mike, I go, oh, yeah. Any of them respond, well, no. But I was out there. I want $1,000 for each one I earnestly shared with. Are we that kind of church? Are we that kind of house? Does our lifestyle demonstrate the abundant life available in Christ? Are we that kind of house? Does it demonstrate the love and the grace, the hope, the joy, and the peace that comes only by the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in us? Are we that kind of house? I pray that we as that kind of church, that kind of house, that kind of family of believers are motivated by compassion and we are working to diligently fulfill the commission that God has given us. That will be a church that brings glory and honor to God. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, by your Holy Spirit, you would stir a compassion in each one of our hearts for the lost. Holy Spirit, we invite you, I invite you in my own life to reveal those things that are hindrances, attitudes that I might have that would hinder me responding with your compassion for those that are looking. God, that we would not let a bountiful harvest, a plentiful harvest go to waste for any reason. I pray, God, that we would learn what it means to just be led by your Holy Spirit, trusting that you will give us words to speak and just let us love on people demonstrate the love of Jesus to the world around us. Lord, I pray you would stir in each one of us to to search for the right answer to the question, are we moved by compassion for the lost? Lord, I pray you would even bring to our mind 
people and opportunities that we've had before and we will have them again. Help us to look at our own lifestyle, the way that we're living, not just speaking. And just cry out to you for the grace to change those things that we know are not pleasing to you. Lord, I think we all did that desire here to be a house that brings glory and honor to you. And Lord, I pray that we would realize that our relationships within the body are important, but so are our relationships outside the body that we would live personally, individually, to bring you glory and honor. I pray, Lord, even as we go forth this week, you provide us those opportunities, give us the grace to respond, to demonstrate the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus to the lost, the hurting, that we would might see the kingdom advanced, all for your glory and for your honor. And we ask all these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.